Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this weekend's UFC card. Here are your hosts, Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivisection with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, as always, Connor Rebush. We're here once again talking about this week's UFC card going down at the T-Mobile Arena in Paradise, Nevada, the suburb of Las Vegas that might as well be Las Vegas, but is technically its own little place, so who cares? Um, and we're talking about UFC 285 this week, headlined by a pair of title fights. Connor, mm. can you believe it? Mm. John Jones is supposed to fight at heavyweight. Supposed to fight. I'm glad you phrased it that way. This Saturday. I, well, I want to give you the benefit. It is as yet a hypothetical fight. It is as yet a hypothetical fight. There is still remains every likelihood that we spend 30 minutes talking about this. Mm-hmm. And then the day before it becomes UFC 285, Cyril Gunn versus Sergei Pavlovich. It, you know, I, 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 I too do not want to uh, count, count my chickens, so to speak, on this. But uh, we have to pretend it's happening. We have to pretend it's happening. Yes, and we are pretending. Invented by a woman's flyweight bout, Valentina Shevchenko, Alexa Grasso. Uh, in what, you know, should it all go off? I mean, hell, even Cyril Gon versus Sergei Pavlovich, if that's what we ended up having, would would be a good fun heavyweight or be a good fun paper. Yeah, yeah. I would like to see that fight, sure. So. A well, a well-made card. You get mm-hmm. two. You get the potential for two great joys in your life: mm. John Jones at heavyweight and a Valentina Shevchenko uh, title fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both That's guaranteed to be extremely exciting fights. Yeah, both things that you personally uh-huh. have been salivating for. <laughs> Yeah, if if salivating is what you call sort of falling asleep and drooling on the desk. Yes, that is exactly what I mean. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see uh, John Jones in the cage again, I, if even if just to know what the hell he looks like mm-hmm. as a heavyweight now, like three years removed from his last, uh, I think everyone now agrees, very unimpressive f- fight as a light heavyweight. Yeah. Um, at the tail end of a streak of pretty unimpressive performances. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't fully know what to expect, except that I don't really expect him to look good. I don't expect him to look any different, is what I would say. No? Not really, no. I mean, I think there's a trend that we're seeing here. And I don't expect him to reverse that trend. No. But I don't necessarily expect any dramatic change from the last time he was in the no. cage either. So, so let's talk about the trend then. Let's try to lay out what it is that because there are a lot of people doing um, a very common thing yeah. in, in that comes up when people are anticipate, anticipating a fight, which is that they sort of mush all the sort of eras of a very of a fighter with a very long career. Mush all yeah. those eras together. 
Yeah. And they have like a conglomerate image of the fighter in their mind. People did this with Jose Aldo, too. Like how many years after Aldo was the low kick king were people still talking about yeah. his devastating low kicks and how they were going to decide the fight? Um, so with Jones, it's like people are, you know, they're thinking of the Glover fight, mm-hmm. thinking of him like, you know, crushing Machida. That Gustafson fight. Yeah. And and in reality, what we've really gotten from Jones is a fighter who is increasingly slow, mm-hmm. both in movement and slow to pull the trigger. That to me is like yeah. the defining change in John Jones is how much more hesitant he's become and how much longer it takes for him to ramp up to what used to be a typical John Jones pace. Mm-hmm. And also a guy who doesn't wrestle anymore. Yep. Which I think is very likely connected to the hesitancy and the re- the the reluctance to pull the trigger is like, you know, John Jones never had a great shot takedown necessarily, but he yeah. used to he used to hit them. They were they were well timed, and you know he's a big strong guy, and was was pretty fast in his youth, and so now it's like. The the openings just sort of come and go before he can seize on the opportunity, it seems. Mm-hmm. And he sort of has to be, like, shaken out of that by the fight kind of going poorly in the beginning yep. for him to start having success and, and looking a little bit uh, still like a shadow, but like a much stronger shadow of the John Jones we know. Yeah, and we've talked in the past, I think some other people, you know, cleverer than me, uh have done some very good breakdowns as to exactly how and why Jones' wrestling game in particular has changed. Mm-hmm. The big narrative uh, that I think is probably most true has been, um, the t- I mean, kind of, it's kind, it's he's kind of an indictment of Jackson Wink and and especially of of Winklejohn. Uh huh as a long-term technique coach, as somebody that you spend years honing the technical parts of your game with. Yeah. Because I think the long-term thing that's happened for John Jones is that they, they took his uh, Greco tie-up clinch game, yeah. in which he did a lot of bo- good body lock wrestling, and they turned it into a Muay Thai clinch. Yeah. And Jones has never really figured out what to do there. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's an MMA Muay Thai clinch. Yeah. Like, the clinch in Muay Thai is. I mean, I'm, I'm just talking as, like a broad stylist. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. But, but what I'm saying is the, the clinch in Muay Thai is as deep as a Greco-Roman clinch game. Yes. Like there's yeah. all kinds of positions and different grips and. You know, body locks yeah. are part of the clinch in Muay Thai, a big part of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, they basically turned him into a guy who wants to grab collar ties and land knees. Yes. As opposed to a guy who would use underhooks and overhooks and wrist ties as his setups, both for wrestling attacks and for strikes. Yeah. He used and, to have a very interesting hybrid sort of striking wrestling clinch. Exactly. And this has been a long, slow modification. And the modification, the end result of it is that he has yeah. a clinch where he can tie up with somebody. And if he can't get immediate leverage on them, he just gets hit. Yeah. He stalls out in the clinch. Tough. He just stalls. Yeah. 
much faster than he used to. And even like in some of those more recent fights, like against Anthony Smith, he did get to his like, I think, uh, uh, former bloody elbow rider, coach Mike Reardon mm-hmm. calls this a, a soda pop series. Like the, uh, the type of wrist control where you grab the wrist over the top mm-hmm. and then you like twist it down as if, you know, pouring out a can of pop mm-hmm. in order to, you know, create, to, to lever the arm away from the body maybe you get an underhook out of that it's very yeah. good in MMA to land knees Jones used to use it for that all the time mm-hmm. and also to sweep up with elbows now that their blocking arm is like totally displaced even when he got to that kind of wrist control on Anthony Smith he just seems hesitant now yeah like he, John Jones did not used to stall out in clinch positions no, I mean, John Jones, when he first got to the UFC, the big delineator for him, uh, you know, outside of his size and uh, just insane reach, was how dynamic a shifting fighter he was. Yeah, and that is really the – this is something Daniel Cormier talks about all the time Yeah, uh, correctly. Like, that is one of the markers yep. of a good MMA wrestler is – you get to you get to your your control position and you're attacking yeah. immediately. The longer you hang out there, the less likely it is you're going to be able to hit a successful takedown or uh-huh. or strike. I mean, this applies to the striking as well. This is why guys, MMA is rife with fighters who get like double collar ties and do not immediately start yanking their opponent's head down and breaking their posture and upsetting their balance, which is how the collar ties work in Muay Thai. Like. You have to exploit this these strong grips immediately, yeah, so that you can then land strikes. Yeah, and I think um, that that I think a lot of what we've seen out of his clinch, the dissolve of his clinch game, you know, there might be other hesitancies in there that have come just with age and time. Yeah, part and, of um, and other, th- you know, a, a mentality shift that goes into that too. But I think the mm-hmm. big thing is a long slow bad coaching process yeah yeah it really so. just dissolved part of the game that used to be a fundamental for him yeah and i think it was probably done under the idea of like oh you're really good in the clinch we'll give you more tools to work there yeah and a you know a lack of understanding of like oh but the tools that he had to work there they only operate in a certain way and yeah. you've got to keep them sharp and you've got you like you should work with those tools. Yeah. Make it's them. A, it's a use it bigger. or lose it thing. I yeah. Mean, that is absolutely the case with people's styles change over time. And to the extent that they they can ultimately become kind of bad at a thing that they used to be good at. We see this in basically all forms of competition as people's mm-hmm. styles change over time and certainly getting older. I mean, the other thing is that just the very vague process of becoming more hesitant is a pretty consistent aspect of an aging fighter's arc. Yeah. That, that was the other thing I was going to mention too. It's just like, if, if we've seen anything from John Jones, it's he's not becoming more injury prone. No, he's still, not becoming chinnier. Still tough as hell. Yeah. Still tough, still tough as hell. Still durable. Still, still very well conditioned. Hurt, still very well conditioned. Does not get tired. He is following the other, other, other getting old in MMA option, yeah. which is that you just become less active. Yep. And very common. 
it is not any better. Like it, it does not result in any better results than any of the other things. It is not. It is just as devastating a way to age out of the sport. Yeah. As becoming chinny, becoming injury prone, or becoming uh, having your gas tank go. Like yeah. you might not lose as dynamically. You might not have the the horrible knockout losses, but you will end up with you know you'll end up in the Tyron Woodley zone mm-hmm. where it's just like or Josh you know Josh Berkman was like he was the first person that really got me mm-hmm. onto this idea of like watching early Josh Berkman and then watching late UFC Josh Berkman right before the end of his his career it's just like mm-hmm. what do you even do out there like you're not. You have whole rounds where you've barely thrown anything and you've got an opponent who respects you because they can see how fast and strong you still are. Yeah. And you're just doing nothing. I almost wonder if this just occurred to me, like it it sort of makes sense. Your reflex is slow. Um, You know, people get more cautious as they get older, Mm -hmm. sort of as a rule, like things that you would dangerous shit you would do as a kid. You will not do once you hit 30. You, You know, your mortality. Exactly. And but I also wonder if part of it is another like just human part of getting older, which is like time passes more quickly. Mm-hmm. You get really accustomed to the passage of time. So like going with your mom to the grocery store when you're a kid for 20 minutes takes nine hours in your brain. Yeah. And now 20 minutes passes with you just like checking your email. Mm-hmm. Um and I almost wonder if that happens to old fighters, too, that they just yeah. like, sort of lose the ability to keep track of how much time is passing with them not doing anything to win. I, I, I think well, it's over already. Yeah, there, there's a big part of it that's familiarity. And it's not I think it's, it's familiarity in several ways, too, in yeah. that, A, there's familiarity and comfort there where they're no longer necessarily pressed or panicked about how fast the fight needs to go. They've been here a hundred times before. And so, yeah, the time is just passing more easily. It's also, uh, I think two over time, uh, for a lot of fighters, perfect can become the enemy of good. Oh yeah. They know more and more what they think they're capable of. And you hear this a lot out of fighters. If you really listen to them talk in interviews and things like that, they'll be like, Oh man, you know, like I'm, I'm better than ever in the gym. Like I'm, you know, everything feels sharper than ever. Mm -hmm. And I think that usually is the case. Yeah. So they know when they're out there better than ever, what they can do. Mm -hmm. And that puts them, I think that puts some of them in a position where they then wait they're then looking for that one perfect opportunity to do that perfect thing that they know they can do. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it is unimportant. It's just, you know, filling the dead space of a fight becomes less important because they're waiting for that opportunity to show off the, 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 the skill that they have absolute confidence in at this point in their career. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and familiarity and comfort and you're just not yeah. like, freaking out you're not in the moment as much because you've been there enough times and yeah um i I think all of these are factors that explain both uh, great fighters declines in general and certainly i think they go some way to explaining what has happened to john jones and why especially too with john jones like he he's been saying lately you know and i will believe him i john jones is many things but he's not a guy who has not fought a lot and won a lot you know he 
as duplicitous and whatever else as he may be, uh, he's saying the big motivator for me to go up to heavyweight is fear, and I want I want to feel afraid of my competition. Mm-hmm. And he's just like I haven't felt afraid of anybody I've had I've fought lately. I don't, you know, and. I think it, it, it's just another way of being like the, the age and comfort thing. Mm-hmm. You can see John Jones fights and like, I'm not saying he doesn't have moments where he gets hurt or hit or things like that. But a lot of these fights with like Reyes and Santos and Smith and Gustafson and, you know, Cormier and all that, these last, you know, from 2017 on have been a lot of him walking into these people, not doing a lot. Mm-hmm. And taking whatever damage comes to him, and you can be like, well, he's just not doing a lot. I don't even know if he won this fight. But it's also clearly like he just doesn't respect a lot of what they have to offer. Yeah, and, and to be honest, like the like uh, alien emotionless poise has long been a defining mm-hmm. reason why John Jones is so great. Yeah. That like this is not a man who freaks out. No. In the way that other people do. It's something he has in common with like Alexander Volkanovsky, for example. Mm-hmm. Another guy who is just like really within himself and calm no matter what is happening. Yeah. Um, yeah and he's also gotten a lot of really good training. My God, the difference. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. That stands out. <laughs> yeah, we were talking, uh, Phil and I were talking about this with Ryan Wagner and he, he had another good point, um, which is that like another reason uh, or a reason that the these markers of decline have not resulted in Jones losing. And this is a strength of his that he has basically always had uh, since he became a mature fighter is that he, he just doesn't like screw up. Yeah. Like this is, this is something that is almost required to be a long reigning champion. Like we're definitely going to have an opportunity to say the same thing about Valentina Shevchenko. That is like her whole thing is like no unforced errors. None. Mm -hmm. Um, and that discipline is why, like, light heavyweights screw up. They're all dumb. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, they all just make horrible decisions in the middle this of the is, fight. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on a, a, one of my core talking points here, but this is why the defining characteristic of light heavyweight is not durability. Yeah. Because it's just too wild. The division is too wild. People make too many mistakes. Yeah. They get they get themselves hurt. They take themselves out of fights all the time. It doesn't, doesn't really matter if you're, you know, accepting Jones and like occasionally durability is great, but like in terms of what, what pushes people up the division to title contention, not necessarily being champ, but just title contention. You, you know, we see guys all the time who can go on five fight win streaks Purely just because they have a variety of opponents who will self-detonate in the cage. And it doesn't matter how great their chin is until suddenly they're only fighting champions or the other top title contenders. And then they get knocked out three times in a row. And you're like, where, where did this happen? Right. You know? Yeah. Dominic Reyes being like. Yeah. And I think with Reyes, we talked about this already. I think the confidence imploding is a, another big part of that. It's yeah, but not it's, even just yeah. suddenly making more mistakes. It's suddenly realizing he's mortal and not being comfortable in the cage anymore. 
Yeah, it's just like it wasn't a fact. The mortality and durability weren't a factor for Reyes on the come up, and then suddenly, you know, you get to the top and you get hurt once, and it's like, oh my god, wait, what? Uh huh. You know, this isn't supposed to happen. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a strength of Jones, and I, and I it think is. could be a window into how this fight plays out because Cyril Gaon is typically a similar kind of fighter, mm-hmm. but he is not as mature a fighter as John Jones. No. And in one of his first real tests, which a credit to his abilities was against Francis Ngannou, he made several unforced errors. <laughs> uh, very one fixed. very, very notable one, which arguably lost him the entire fight when he mm-hmm. uh, when he decided the only way to not get taken down again by Ngannou was to take Ngannou down and then gave up position for a sacrificial leg lock attempt. Yeah. Apparently operating on the assumption that Francis Ngannou is as bad as Dante Mays. Yep. The last and... guy that he successfully heel hooked with. You can watch it. Not exactly good heel hook technique. It worked no. because heavyweight, not because Cyril Gaon is a leg lock maestro. Yeah. Uh, you know, I fight factory and has he spent some time against, uh, tri- uh, has he spent some time at uh, TriStar? Yeah, like he was, yeah, he was fighting in in Canada for a little bit. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe that was just a you know place that he could also speak French. So it was. <laughs> um, but Fight Factory has, you know, it is a it is a camp that it's attracted some great athletes. But it is also one of those camps that I am not at all convinced about no. what they're instilling in those no. athletes. No, and I think a a definite case of um of Fernand Lopez getting lucky with in, in an SBG Ireland way. Yeah, with just two like generationally talented fighters. Exactly. Uh, in at both Ngannou and Gone. Yeah. Yeah, they are not fighters that I have really seen grow technically at all over their yeah. time in MMA. But usually Gon succeeds because he is incredibly consistent for a heavyweight. Yeah. Uh, you know, he really relies on his basic safe weapons. He's super effective from long range. And I think for as long as John Jones is not trying to wrestle him, mm-hmm. um, I favor Gon in this fight. And my only real concern with picking him is maybe Jones has it would be really insane not to have really worked on his wrestling yeah um, well there's like a, you know like having you said, seen what Nganu did to Gon like it would be really stupid not to test that um but even then like you know he he couldn't he couldn't take like Anthony Smith down on his shot attempts in the first you know he he couldn't take Tiago Santos down he couldn't take Dominic Reyes down. None of these guys are amazing wrestlers. Yeah. Um, none of them are as big as Cyril Gaon, and they're all maybe slightly better takedown defenders, technically. Um, but if it comes down to taking a weird shot from too far away, I, I typically kind of assume Gaon's going to be able to stop most of them. Well, and... Heavyweight especially makes it very likely that a bad Jones shot 
will be sprawled on in a way that Jones is extremely uncomfortable with. Yeah, he has actually openly said he doesn't like that. I mean, yeah, he's talked about it as a reason why it it should take so much preparation to finally go up to heavyweight. Is like, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, certainly, I don't know that training with Walt Harris and Jorgen DeCastro and Maurice Green yeah. will have uh, really tightened up John Jones' takedown and yeah. the necessity of John Jones' takedown entries. None yeah. of them are going to be. None of them have the hips to get there to get back as fast. Or the there, size, there is a worrying sense tech, yeah. behind that that team of uh, of you know guys. That yeah, yeah. Uh, that like John Jones is really trying to like comfort himself in this camp. And I'm not saying that Cyril Gaon doesn't. I don't think have great training partners either. But the yeah. mere fact that Jones is like thinking of that as like a sign of how well prepared he is, is a little weird. Like, yeah, he's, why are... he's picked a bunch of guys who tend to <laughs> yeah. self destruct. Exactly, and that's a, so. So that was my point. Basically, is I kind of favor Gone because I assume a lot yeah. of this is going to be a pretty slow paced kickboxing match. And at this point, I think Gone is just way more consistent in his output. He relies on a lot of tools that basically no other Jones opponents have. Mm-hmm. Jabs, yeah, great, great kicker. Um, has a, a wide variety of kicks to choose from. A very flexible and tricky kicker, and is very mobile. So will not just easily corner himself like so many of Jones's more recent opponents have. And so I kind of think basically if we look at the usual pattern of Jones kind of warming up and getting more active, probably will still be able to outlast Gone, mm-hmm. even though Gone himself has great stamina. Um, then I think to pick Jones, you kind of have to count on something weird happening. Yeah. Like a caught kick, some weird collision where somebody just falls down. Like that, I think, is the most likely entrance to an actually dominant grappling sequence for John Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. I think because uh, I just don't trust him to hit even clean if Jones, ups. even if Jones has worked on his wrestling, uh, I don't I don't expect that clinch problem to have been fixed. Yeah. And if that's and if that gone has is, been gone is not weak in the clinch either. It no. is like. Yeah. You'd have to surprise him with a shot, I think, or catch a kick. It, it, and if he hasn't fixed the clinch problem, then I don't think that Jones is going to take him down with a distance shot. It's never been the highlight of Jones' game. He doesn't like getting sprawled on. I don't yeah. think it's going to, I don't think heavyweight fills him with confidence in a way that is going to make him want to take that risk. So I am not, I'm definitely not, uh, banking on that i will say i would be slightly nervous about the prospect of gone trying to take jones down boy i hope instead. he doesn't dead um but that's the kind of unforced error i'm talking about yeah because yeah, gone might just lunge in the shot and be like i'm gonna might, surprise him yeah he might try to shoot in on jones and i absolutely do trust jones to do something just like hip tossing gone onto the mat and landing on top of him yeah. if it off a bad shot from Cyril Gone. Yeah, or just sprawling with a front headlock. Or just like sprawling with the front headlock. Working his way to the back or half guard yeah. or something. And yeah. Like that is something that Jones, he is still very capable of taking advantage of those kinds of errors. Yeah. And, and the, one of his, one of his most comprehensive recent fights granted against an utterly shot Alexander Gustafson, 
Yeah. But he did show in that one that given top position, he oh, still yeah. feels comfortable enough there to just smash people. Yeah. Um, the other, you know, the other things I think we need to note that are good reservations to have. A, there's a good reservation to have about Jones with his time off, with the fact that he has been so durable, is that his defense getting out of the pocket is still beyond atrocious. Yeah. It is one of the weird – we talk about Jones not making a, a lot of unforced errors. If he was not so durable, it would be the massive glaring unforced error in his game that when backed up, he will turn his back on somebody and yeah. just try to jog a little circle out of the pocket. And yeah. like – Granted, so will gone. <laughs> yeah. This is the – this is a, a a pandemic of bad footwork among basically all MMA fighters. Yeah, but for Jones, he's so used to getting away from with it from how tough he is up at heavyweight. It just might be that like there'll be a head kick from a dude who weighs two hundred and sixty pounds. Yeah, you know? could be. Uh, that is a worry. I, I I know Jones is super durable. I'm not calling it. I'm actually going to pick Jones here. Mm. Um, but it is something to be concerned about. The bigger thing for me to be honestly concerned about is just, I don't think honestly that gone is going to take any part of Jones's game away from him. I think he's got a good jab which could cause all kinds of hell. We don't, I don't know how Jones will react to it. Maybe that'll just be the, maybe the jabs and the low kicks will be the killing. I blow mean, this the, time. The, these are effective weapons. Like Anthony Smith very, was winning on the feet against John Jones. As long as he was working his legs, these are very effective weapons and they could be the breaker. Um, but Gone is just very willing, and he's good. He's better at it than a lot of other Jones opponents to work off his back foot. And the defensive moves that he makes off of his back foot, as you noted just now, mm-hmm. they are also really miserable. Mm-hmm. Like he's just clearly not a guy used to having anybody challenge him consistently off his back foot out at range. Yeah. And, but at least he moves. I mean, yeah, he moves. And like, this is something that Jones's recent opponents have not been able to do. That like, because I think really Jones is not a, himself as good a pressure fighter as he is like in open space and himself fighting off the back foot. Like, easily his best performance ever was that rematch against Daniel Cormier, mm-hmm. where Daniel yeah, Cormier, Cormier was just was dedicated to trying to pressure and bull forward on him. Yeah, and he was running him into counter knees, and he was keeping him on the end of the jab. He was countering him all over the shop, and um, but then you see more recent performances against like really just visibly scared and passive opponents, and he's like, and I don't just, think. Yeah, I don't think that Gon will be scared or passive. No, no, no. But I just think that he's Yeah. I, I'm I'm just saying I think he's gonna give Jones the ability to pressure and fight at a fight at the pace that Jones Jones wants to fight at. Gon throws he's a he's a bit higher output, but both men are pretty happy to have a like mm-hmm. you know, one two, one strike at a time. 
reset, keep distance kind of fight. Yeah, these aren't exactly great combination punchers. Yeah, and Gon, when he does have that fight, like he just his his stance falls apart a lot more for me. He he gets a lot more wild and off balance when he tries to do more. Mm-hmm. And Jones is just so consistent yep. at moving forward, keeping to a few tools. Here's my lead hook. Here's my body kick. Here's the side kick to the leg. Just threatens do- everywhere, all levels. Yep. And Constantly just doing poking. this slowly and, you know, pressure over and over and over and over and over again. And I think over five rounds, I'm just going to take him to to do that to, to do that well enough that these problems that Gon has never really had to pay for in his game with other heavyweights, mm-hmm. he'll pay for him here. Yeah, I think that's um, a perfectly fair read. It doesn't sound inaccurate to me. I mean, yeah. I'll just I'll just quote what our our mutual nemesis Phil said, which is that he thought people were vastly overrating Jones's ability to out wrestle Gon and vastly mm-hmm. underrating his ability to win a stinky kickboxing match. Yeah, and that's kind of what I see is I'm just going to pick uh-huh. Jones to just like have the forward pressure and it just be a fight where people are like he did not win that fight. Yeah, oh yeah, it's going to be very did close you, either did, way. Yeah, did you see how hard he got kicked in like the first two rounds and then that moment in the third where Gon like landed a hook and Jones stumbled a little? Mm-hmm. And Jones will, you know, he'll get that round or he'll get one of the first rounds and Gon will get hurt a little worse at some point or he'll shoot in and like give up a, a takedown and spend a round on bottom yeah. with Jones and he'll just clearly lose. And then the last just round be he'll dead be tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. And so that's what I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick Jones to uh, yep. just have, like I say, I don't expect a better version of John Jones. I don't expect anything more than the late career John Jones we've seen. Yep. I just think that that might still be enough yeah. to win this fight at heavyweight. All I really expect is a pretty close and pretty boring fight. Yeah. Which will nonetheless be interesting. I mean, it will. Yeah. I'm fascinated to see it. Like in Gone Ugon was a fight that, like, am I going to recommend this to anyone? No. No. But, you know, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. Like, what is yeah. happening, you know, the whole time? I'm interested. It's a weird fight. And I think this will be weird without necessarily being like, if I wasn't invested, I wouldn't call it fun. But I'm yeah. invested. I'm yeah. curious. And uh, I'm happy to be looking forward to a boring fight. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, and like, I will be on the edge of my seat. It'll be, you know, Jones at heavyweight is just, it has been a massive question mark forever because it's a move that he clearly doesn't want to make. And even, I say, even in like now fight week or, you know, weeks leading up to the fight, he's talking about like part of the reason I'm doing this is a fear motivation. Like I say, I know Jones is a liar and everything, but that seems like a very honest assessment. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. And like that makes a, that makes perfect sense as to why it took him a decade to get here. Because mm-hmm. like he's afraid of it. And we'll see. Like we'll yep. see what that means. Yeah, it'd be pretty cool if it rejuvenates John Jones. Yeah. 
And maybe, yeah. maybe well, maybe it'll, maybe he'll be like so many other light heavyweights who go up to heavyweight. <laughs> we talked about the the dad factor that Jones does not have. Yeah, Jones is pure degenerate uncle energy. Yeah, sadly, he is a dad, but does not have the dad energy. <laughs> he, he, he does not, especially. The Cyril Gaon, even though this is why Cyril Gaon is a heavyweight outlier. Well, but the thing is, is that the dad energy thing—it's it, not used to judge heavyweights. It's used to judge light heavyweights who move to heavyweights, who to move to heavyweight. If you're just a lifelong heavyweight, you don't have to have Even that. Energy. So though, most heavyweights are big time dads. Like yeah, Francis, but, Francis and Gano, you can see him, yes, you know, marinating, Francis, marinating some chicken thighs for the grill. Like yeah. Cyril Gano is just like a lazy bachelor guy by his I, own admission. <laughs> I'm just saying it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have. It's not necessary to being a heavyweight if you're a lifelong heavyweight it is a marker of can you move from light heavyweight to heavyweight because to do that you have to have a certain innate confidence that you're going to be facing dudes bigger than you yeah and you're going to be fine with it because you know you don't you don't you don't think about losing basketball a basketball to your kid just because he's four inches taller than you now yeah exactly that's the thing. Yep. And that is something that Jones does not have. He, no, it's true. He does not have – he has insane – he has insane poise and confidence in the cage, but as a natural part of his personality, he does not exude the uh, – he, he does not exude actual confidence. He always exudes the shell of confidence. Yeah. He's, he's got school bully confidence. Yeah. You know who Cyril Gaon's personality reminds me of? This just occurred to me. He's very much like a GSP kind of guy, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Like pretty nice, easygoing. Yep. Will probably just be a bachelor forever. Yep. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out that he loves like trucks or like, you know, yeah. like, not, yeah. like, like construction trucks, like bulldozers <laughs> and like. <laughs> You yeah, know. I can't wait to, to have enough Xerogon exposure that I find out what his bizarre special interests yeah. are. Spotting, you know. Yeah. I think it would be really cool if it turns out that Xerogon, like, it spends every weekend at, like, the medieval weapons and armor museums in yeah. France. Yeah, some, something like that. Where you that would just... be cool. He's really into, like, forging, like, blacksmithing. That would be cool. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Gon is... Scrap, uh, <laughs> scrapbooking, says our producer. <laughs> Gone opened at minus 166, jumped up to minus 110, is currently up at plus 138. Jones opened at plus 140, dropped to minus 113, down at minus 165. All right. Jones, tr- money trending in Jones' direction. Just as long as it's close. So I'm expecting yep. a, a close, close fight. Very much. All right. That brings us to our co main event. Valentina Shevchenko, Alexa Grasso. And this is one of those fights that I would really love to like feel like needs a more nuanced read. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. Alexa Grasso. I like what she's been doing. Mm-hmm. I like the the uptick in output, the increased confidence with which she steps into the pocket and punches. But her game, the, the evolution of her game still just puts her in a core conundrum that 95% of Valentina Shevchenko's opponents have found themselves in yeah, and is absolutely devastating. 
which is that when Grasso gets uh, can get cracked or when somebody can track her down she needs to tie up with them and be the more physical force mm-hmm. or she she will have to try to be the more physical force or you know somebody like she can beat Macy Barber but Macy Barber still pushed her around mm-hmm. for every part of that fight and Vivia Raujo, she just had to go toe to toe with Vivia Raujo because she couldn't push Vivia Raujo around. Mm. Yeah, that's she, not what I saw as the main shortcoming stylistically for her here, but that is definitely a factor. It's just the idea that you know she can go out there and she can she can trade some good one tooth with Shevchenko and may, probably make Shevchenko pretty uncomfortable immediately because. You know, as much as commentary booth likes to bang on about it, and as much as her background would suggest it, Shevchenko is not a comfortable pocket striker. No. She's never going to be. She it will pick you off at long range if that's all you're going to give her. She'll catch you coming in. Catch you coming in. She will sit down on one hard combo in the pocket, one good one-two, and then she will clinch up immediately and if she can bully you in that clinch she will bully you immediately yep and once she starts doing that like too bad and you know she we talked about how like shevchenko doesn't make mistakes how jones doesn't make these aren't people who take their own fights away from themselves shevchenko like that is a core flaw to shevchenko's game as she showed against both jennifer maya and Tyler Santos, she tried, she sacrificed through herself in both of those fights yeah. and drug her opponent on top of her because they were physically strong enough in those tie ups. Right. That she could not be the simple bully that she wants to be there. Yeah. She, she has to bully people in the clinch. But I don't see anything about Alexa Grasso's game that suggests that's not going to happen. Yeah. It seems pretty straightforward. And the other thing I will add that I see is the real, um, the real like um, stopgap, uh, whatever. The real pinch point for Alexa Grasso is that um, she's just not a very good range fighter. Yeah, like uh, Grasso is Grasso is really quite sharp and and fairly dangerous in the pocket. Mm-hmm. Like exactly where Shevchenko is least comfortable, that is where Grasso is really great. Yeah. But getting to the pocket is always a dicey proposition. Always 50-50 exchanges for exactly. her. Which is why against a you know a marginally improved Viviane uh, Araujo, she just sort of ended up having the same exchange over and over again because she would circle, she would you know put her guard up, she'd do her little head movement thing, you know that classic MMA head movement that sort of only exists at the range where nobody's yeah. throwing punches Show, anyway. The, the Shogun and Rashad special. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but then, like, it, as soon as she has to get inside, you can see it before it happens. Yeah. She's going to step in with a big jab, and it's a nice-looking jab. Yeah. You know, it's sharp. It's, it, it lands. It's pretty stiff. 
But uh, if Arujo just sort of decides to jab back at her at the same time, they're both going to eat a jab. Mm-hmm. And this happened over and over for 25 minutes straight. Mm-hmm. And this is what Grasso is missing is a real sort of feeling of like dexterity at long range. And she doesn't faint enough. And tied to faints, but even more broadly encompassing, she just doesn't like vary her timing on her entries. Um, when she puts a combination together, they're fast punches. Yeah. But they tend to all be exactly the same speed. They tend to all be left-right, left-right combinations with little variation. Mm-hmm. And um, the best you can say about her is that she does punch the body. But even that sort of falls into the same kind of tempo trap. Yeah. It is, you could probably nail that down in part too as to why for somebody who seems like they're putting together stronger, cleaner, bigger strikes, she's yeah. still not really uh, – She's not a she's not a puncher that hurts anyone. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so you you get fights where it's like, I, I expected her against Arujo to look like like Whitaker versus Gaslam. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think Grasso is capable of having that kind of fight. Like Whitaker is very tricky with his timing. He's very yeah. creative in all of the, uh, you know what I what I what I just called on heavy hands the unsexy aspects of boxing. Yeah, not the punches, not the combinations, not you know digging these cool shots and slipping and countering, but like just the little stuff that makes it all work and continue to work, so that the opponent cannot get used to what you're doing. Yeah, Whitaker is excellent at fainting his way he's into the pocket. A at, great fainter, great at, variation of timing. To not know when he's stepping in. Yeah, and and great great variation of timing and tricky mm-hmm. shot selection as well, yep. where it's very difficult. It all starts with the jab and what's coming after the jab and when it's coming, or if that even was a real jab he just threw. All of yeah. these are little details of uh, of obfuscation that confuse the opponent's ability to ever make the key defensive adjustments. Yeah, and these are the things that Grasso is missing. Yep. So, yeah, you stick her in the pocket, she's going to look like a really good boxer. But all these little other aspects of what makes a person a good boxer are are still as underdeveloped as they have always been. And that, to me, looks like a death sentence against Shevchenko. It really does. entire game, as you just described, like knowing she's not good in the pocket um, and knowing that she must be able to bully people in the clinch to be comfortable and to win – all of this is connected to the fact that distance management is her – that is the bedrock of her game. Yeah, She is yeah. relentlessly trying to keep keep herself at the correct distance where every one of the opponent's obvious strikes, which are even more obvious because they're too far away when they start, every single one is um, – brings them closer to making a critical error where they have to yeah. overextend to get to her. And when that happens, she's either going to counter them or she's going to step in and, and body lock them. Yeah. I, I swear to I swear to fucking God. <laughs> I swear to God, uh-huh. I am going to have an aneurysm <laughs> exactly three minutes into this fight when Shevchenko steps forward, hits a body lock trip takedown, and Daniel Cormier goes... Oh, wow. I didn't think we'd see that. <laughs> it does seem very likely. Yeah. 
She's like, can you, you know, she's a great striker, but wow, she really, she's deciding to wrestle. <laughs> that's really, you know, that's really pretty special. What that just shows. Thing? <laughs> and <laughs> people just... just have these persistent misconceptions about what a fighter, a given fighter actually likes to do. Yes. And it just <laughs> kills me. It kills me. Yeah. Dominic Cruz may be my least favorite UFC commentator of all time, but Daniel Cormier is absolutely the worst guy at looking at somebody's very normal, fundamental way that they fight all the time and being totally shocked by it. Yeah. That's his great shortcoming. I think I love Daniel Cormier's wrestling commentary. Yeah, you know, wrestling guy has a lot of interesting things to say about wrestling positions that no other commentator has. He's a good cage interviewer. Yes. He is charismatic. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy his voice when he is speaking. But my yeah. God, that's when he and, and, and that's a Joe Rogan thing now too. more, more yeah. than ever. Now that he like does zero research. Yeah. Yeah, just having this very narrow idea of the person you're watching. And, and somehow, even though every single fight, they go to this sooner or later, being like, wow, I can't believe it. Shevchenko's wrestling Grasso. Yeah, no, she is going to wrestle Grasso. Yeah. Who's going to have to try very hard to get in the pocket. I mean, another limitation, she doesn't even have the um, the usual adaptation to like lack of distance savvy that most MMA fighters have, which is, you know, more tools. Yeah. Like that's always the band-aid for MMA fighters when they're lacking in the subtleties is like, well, I'm just going to do more different things. Grosso isn't even really like an active kicker. Mm-mm. She's very much a boxer. And so there's, there's not even like a confusion of variety to, to, to help her disguise the fact that like, oh, you, not only do you know when I'm coming in, but you know exactly what I'm coming in with. Just wait. She's either going to A – knock Shevchenko out in the pocket with like their one exchange. I would love it. Or arm bar her off her back. Cause you know, yeah, Grasso is actually like a, a pretty, you know, she's got an attacking guard. That's her sort of her yeah, other she's a solid submission grappler for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, it's, it, it would be hilarious. It's not going to happen, but yeah. I mean, I think we are probably looking at the first, um, stages of Shevchenko like declining. She's definitely at, at least been facing more difficulty with recent I, opponents. What we're looking at really with Shevchenko, you know, she's only 34 and she's a huge athletic level above most yeah. of that. Well, she's still. been doing combat sports since she was like 14 though. Um, yeah, there, there's wear and tear maybe, but I think the thing we're really looking for, looking at right at this point is now, Literally years of people training to fight her. That is absolutely a thing, too. Yeah. I think that's really the big thing. Is it like Tyler Santos has been training to fight Valentina Shevchenko for Valentina Shevchenko's entire title reign? Yeah. And it's notable, very notable, must be noted, that the two people who gave her the most trouble that made her look mortal, uh, the thing that they really challenged her in was her wrestling. Yeah. They were strong in the clinch. They were yeah. very strong, very difficult to take out of the clinch. Difficult and, to take down and strong enough to, to test. You know, this is this is one of Shevchenko's other actual technical shortcomings. She's not really a great takedown defender. No. That the vast majority of her opponents can't 
A, get to the range where they can try to take her down, or B, aren't strong enough to do it when they do get there. Yeah. She she has that uh, she she has a shortcoming that she does not that rarely gets exposed, which is is that she's actually somewhat of a willing attempting guard grappler. Yeah, yeah. But if you try to take her down, she will actually just kind of give up a takedown. Yeah. But you have to like you have to really step through fire. Yeah. And it's going to be usually Shevchenko. I mean, this was half the time in the Santos fight. It was her initiating the clinches. Yeah. And in this fight, it's going to be her initiating the clinches, her getting to the underhooks faster, her hitting the trip first. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. It just seems like a death zone for Grosso. And then I just think that Grosso's every attempt to do anything at range is going to be frustrated or lead to the death zone. Yeah. So I think it looks like a pretty easily winnable fight for Valentina. Mm hmm. It, it it does make the idea of uh, an Aaron Blanchfield title fight interesting, though, in that like for sure Blanchfield has literally her entire career has happened while Shevchenko has been champ. Yep. And even if she plans on you know even if it's an oh I'm you know I'm going to get taken down by her, Blanchfield has been talking like I have been specifically training to beat this person. Yeah. With my grappling for my whole career. Yep. You know? She's she's got a game I think very well tailored to uh to really troubling Shevchenko. Yeah. Shevchenko is the favorite open at minus 550 currently down at minus 737. Grosso opening at plus 400 currently up at plus 506. The odds getting pretty wide in the last couple in the last week or so probably uh Shevchenko a mid, a midpoint player in people's parlays I would assume. Just a little reminder that you could support the MMA Vivisection, the MMA Depressed Us, and the sixth round post-fight show simply by going to patreon.com slash MMA Vivisection. With three different tiers ranging from $3 to $7, it's incredibly easy to show support to your favorite analysts, Zane, Connor, Eddie, and Phil. So if you have a few dollars to spare, please consider us. Thank you so much. Uh, that brings us around to a welterweight fight. Jeff Neal, Shavkat Rachmanov. Rachmanov. Good, good fight? Good fight. Good fight for Rachmanov, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a really soft, like the Ponzinibbio Luke Neil train is a very workable path up to the top of the of you know title contention mm-hmm. for Rachmanov. He's not being the the questions being asked by a fight with Jeff Neal are not significantly different than the questions he just asked, except that it's faster and harder. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and I and I would I would caution people against thinking that we're looking at a rejuvenated Jeff Neal or something based on that Luke fight. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the 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 Luke part of that trio is uh, is looking pretty washed. These I days. did I did actually confuse myself there of looking at Jeff Neal's record and thinking it was Rachmanov's. Um, <laughs> thank you for not pointing that out, but. Yeah, for Neil, he's been well. He now, got Magni. Rachmanov got Magni out of the way. Yeah. And now he's on to Neil. Now, now he's on to Neil, and, and this probably, is probably 
This is mm-hmm. actually, in that sense, a new test for Rachmaninoff, but not one that asks any question that he hasn't already. Or I, that ha, I don't think it has a great deal of potential to ask a different question of Rachmaninoff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Matt, Jeff Neal is a very... Um, I'm going to, I'm going to use this uh, recently, you know, the, the whole Dilbert thing was happening yeah. and, uh, people posted, um, Bill Watterson, the mm-hmm. brilliant creator of Calvin and Hobbes, an interview with him where he was asked about various other comic creators. And Watterson has never been a guy who like minces words. He will say when yeah. he thinks something sucks and he was asked about Dilbert and he said, Dilbert is consistent. really great (laughs) it is really and not quite as condescendingly but that is kind of what i would say about jeff neal yeah he is consistent and that can be a very strong point and it can be a big weakness that jeff neal is not remotely an adaptable fighter no not from one opponent to the next and not from one round to the next he reminds me a lot of um, Josh Emmett. Yeah, yeah, and even Josh Emmett, I would say, has shown a little more flexibility. It, it kind of comes and goes yeah. inexplicably sometimes, but yeah, there are fights where Josh Emmett goes through two extremely consistent rounds, and then it's like, oh, wait, I should do something different. Yeah. And he usually obliterates somebody when he has that realization. Um, You know, like his fight with Michael Johnson. I'm not sure yeah. that Jeff, Jeff Neal has had a performance like that, really. The, the one against Luke was maybe unexpected in that you thought Luke would be a would just be tougher and hit Neil more and in fact look more fragile than ever and more hesitant than ever. Yeah, but it still falls in line with what a Jeff Neal win looks like, which yeah. is either he gets an early advantage and rides that to a win or he doesn't. Yeah. Or sometimes where he does get an early advantage and then the opponent adjusts and he just kind of keeps doing the same thing. Yeah. He's he's he has a very limited toolkit. Mm-hmm. Left hand, left kick. <laughs> That's yeah. I mean that really is the 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 long and the short of it. Um, most of the business that Jeff Neal does with his right hand is not threatening because you kind of know after a few exchanges that it's just serving to set up the left. Mm-hmm. Um, he does not jab. Um, he will throw a right hook after the left hand. This is a common thing with like one handed fighters, but. It is not a weapon in and of itself. Yeah. And um, and he also has the Josh Emmett thing of, yeah, being same speed, same intensity. Not a yeah. lot of fainting. Go, not a lot going of... backward, going forward, you know where all the punches, you know what everything is, and you know right. where it's going, and it's punches to your head. You know? So defensively or, or countering, it's not a difficult game to adjust to. Yeah. And Neil does not really seem to know how to adjust it. No, I mean, we, if, if nothing else, that fight he had with Stephen Thompson should really, that should be the elite level. Yeah. That, that should be the, 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 the perfect elite understanding of who Jeff Neal is. There are, I was thinking about this when I was prepping for our show this week, that there are really two types of fights that if you're, if you're tape studying and you really want to get to know a fighter, there are two types of fights that you actually want to see really, really want to see. And that is one where the fighter gets to 
absolutely shit kick somebody for three rounds mm-hmm. because they are just not good enough but are tough enough to stay there. And the other one is a fight where they get absolutely shit kicked for three <laughs> rounds because they're just not good enough, but they're tough enough to stay there. Yeah, or five rounds, as the case may be. Or five rounds in the case of Thompson. And those two things will tell you everything you need to know about how what game the fighter wants to do. Because when you see somebody who's just winning, you know, when you see uh, Jeff Neal against Vicente Luque, and he right. hurts him immediately, and he has the advantage all the way through. Yeah. And Luke is tough enough to stay there for three rounds. You see exactly the fight Jeff Neal wants to have out yeah. there. And what that fight is, is one in which he, at one point, will literally throw 12 left hands in a row. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there was like an attempted finishing sequence, maybe the actual finishing sequence, or it was like left straight, left hook, yeah. left uppercut, left uppercut, left uppercut, left hook. It was just all left hands. And then you watch Jeff Neal versus Stephen Thompson. And you see exactly what all of Jeff Neal's plan B's are and what his secondary game is and what he falls back on when everything is going wrong. I'm pretty sure it was left hands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Again, that is not to be too reductive, but he is a pretty reductive fighter. Yeah. Um, And he's fast and he's tough. He's well conditioned and he's dangerous. Mm -hmm. But he shot zero takedowns in that, that Thompson fight. Yeah, although he did try to take Neil Magny down. Oh, he did try to take Neil As anyone who can't adjust to an opponent does when they face Neil Magny, they just can't yeah. resist the call of Neil the Magny's siren song. The siren song of his seemingly unthreatening clinch that yeah. suddenly you realize it actually sucks to be there after the first two or three of them. Um. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a little harder, I think, to just sort of sum up Shavkat Rachmanov's game, and I think that is to his credit in a matchup like this. As a secondary note, so Jeff Neal, Stephen Thompson, five-round fight. Neal, he attempted zero takedowns. Yeah. He uh, threw... 179 significant strikes, 205 total strikes. Oh, I thought you were going to say left hands. 179 significant left. strikes, 205 total strikes. I'll assume that, for, for argument's sake, we'll assume that 100 of the 179 land <laughs> were left hands. Maybe maybe 140 yeah. <laughs> uh, of, of the 179 thrown were left hands. And of the total, 205 will go with with 150 thrown. Yeah, okay. But um, 161 of the 179 significant strikes he threw were to the head. Yeah, that's another thing, yes. Seven were to the body, seven to the leg, ten were in the clinch. Yeah. So... We, you, you know, when I, when I, when we're talking about like somebody losing a fight, what do you, what do you see as their secondary game come out? It really is not a lot for it's Jeff. The same. Yeah, exactly. It's he, the he, same. Just, he just can't adjust. Yeah. Head hunting, one handed, one legged kickboxer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just like, I don't know exactly how Shafkat Rachmanov is going to approach him. 
Yeah. But I do, do know that Shavkat Rachmanov, quite contrary to Jeff Neal, is sort of defined by a willingness to experiment and try things. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they're not good ideas, and they will often work out anyway because he's a great athlete and he's really big. Yep. And but, he knows what the he knows what the core thing he wants to do in his game is, which is that sooner or later he's he's going to be outside. He's going to be trying creative things. He's going to be trying to confuse you and uh, get you thinking. And that confusion and that thinking, it is all going to lead to the clinch. And yeah. what comes out of that clinch might be a spinning back fist. It might be a knee to the body. It might be a, a standing back take or something. Whatever. Jump for it a knee might be a jumping, a standing guillotine. Whatever it is, it's going to suck shit, and it's going to be really well executed. Yeah. That is the thing we've seen over and over again. It's going to be is done it, with supreme confidence and power. Like, Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's not just, a hesitant fighter, which is a, no. a, a, great, a great point in his favor, honestly, is that when he has an idea, and this is, this is so true in so many forms of competition, like it is much better usually to commit fully to a bad idea than mm-hmm. to not be sure what to do. Trevor Peak, we see you out there. Yeah, right. Come on, Trevor. Like maybe, maybe the ideas could should get a little better. But yeah. man, does that dude commit? I had somebody from uh, Trevor Peak's gym. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure his coach's name. He 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 name checked him, and I I can't recall it. But I he replied because I tweeted, "Look at Trevor Peak's coaches standing there, all proud, like they did something." <laughs> Because you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all going to make fun of him for this. This is, it has to, like, yeah. No, we can watch Hoof that fighter, and not. Yeah, if that, if that was a Henry Hoof fighter, he would not have been in the building for the <laughs> no. photo. Hoof would have been. You there would be. They would cut to like the <laughs> the back of the arena cam. And there's Hoof with like a bottle of of, of Jack Daniels, yeah. sort of like putting Just, on a hat and pulling it down over his eyes. Like, yeah, doesn't want to be recognized. Yeah. Anyway, somebody replied, and they were like, this is funny, but, like, just so you know, like, the coach is actually a good coach, and Trevor just doesn't listen, which I thought was very funny coming from somebody at the gym. But they were like, yeah, Trevor just does what he wants to do. Yeah. I'm, I mean, and like, thing, I believe that. I believe because he's clearly a superb natural athlete who has never had a day's serious instruction in his life that he is, or at least not a day. He hasn't absorbed it. Yeah. He's listened to because he is so strong and so dynamic that he doesn't have to like, they got taken down in that fight and just like push, you know, they even talked about commentary. He did like the Derek Lewis get up. Yeah. Just like, okay, I'm going to do a push up with you on top of me. And then I'm just going to stand. Yeah. Like the dude, a a beautiful shit show that fight. Yeah. It was a beautiful shit show. I am going to be rooting for him all the way through because, you know, few things are as fun to watch some guy just go through, go in and like break care, carefully crafted meta by uh-huh. being just a complete wild man that can't be yeah. controlled in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know what, how we got on that huge sidetrack. Yeah. We had to talk about Trevor Peak sooner or later, but yeah, we had to. Um, that one's got to go on. It depressed us at some point. Oh yeah. It's, it's oh, yeah. short, but like just as a little extra have, for a good, he will have a three round fight sooner or later. Oh yeah. Yeah. But that he is the will. definition of a good, bad. Fight. Yeah. Um, nothing good happened, but it was all wonderful. Yeah. Anyway, 
anyway, I don't know how we got onto that, but the you know the Shavkat Rachmanov, yes, one way or the or the other, for as long as he spends, um, you know, setting up overcommitted but very well timed and and fast powerful strikes at range. Sooner or later, he will lead himself to the clinch. And this will be even easier here because Jeff Neal will also lead himself to the clinch. Yeah. When Jeff Neal is not countering, he will run himself, especially, and this is key against Rachmanov, if if the fighter is longer than him. Yeah. Which is why it's almost surprising he didn't try it against Stephen Thompson. Yeah. Because that is the usual reason... I think the thing with Thompson was his his actual his exiting p- footwork is too good. There yeah. were several, there were many moments in that fight where Neil literally just ran past Thompson. Yeah, and how can you count that as a takedown attempt when you don't even like? Yeah, that's true. Usually, it would have led to clinches where he would have tried to wrestle Thompson. Yeah, except that these extremely committed straight line entries where he's you know trying to use the furthest weapon from the opponent. Yeah. his left hand to connect from a very far Stephen Thompson distance. Yeah. It's just, yeah, if you actually know how to sidestep or pivot, it's just going to come nowhere near. Yeah. Against Rachmanov, who doesn't have that level of footwork, who is perfectly happy to welcome a clinch, I think there's going to be clinches. And I think yep. Neil may even look for them proactively, as I think you were about to say, as mm-hmm. he did against Magni, because he's going to be uncomfortable at the range. He's going to feel this huge gap he has to cover. And the only way to feel safe covering it when you only have one punch is to like just run in as fast as you can after the punch so that you're yeah, you're out of danger because you're punching and clutching. Yep. Uh, yeah. And he won't be out of danger. He's going to get wrestled in the clinch. He's going to get body locked, tripped, flung around. Rachmanov is big and strong. And, it, is, um, it is interesting to note Rachmanov is currently at Killcliff FC. Uh, having moved there. What a roster there. They're gathering such a roster of great fighters. I mean, they always have had a really strong team, but like each time it speaks for itself. It really does. We we talk about it all the time. We talk about what a, you know, unhappy father figure he is. But, um, the, you know, if you talk about gyms should be defined by like what they do with their worst fighters. Yeah. Like, he just consistently makes people better. Yep. Uh, technically. Yeah, you, he's just a good striking coach. That just, yep. There's no other way to put it. We say it enough times, but it hasn't changed. Yeah. I will say, though, it does that. It does sound the tiniest note of caution because he is not a quick striking coach. Yeah. He is a break you down and rebuild you from the ground up, and there will be hard bumps yeah. in the road and, t- and teaching moments kind yeah. of striking striking coach and Rachmanov is easily a guy who could have some of those sure but i i still yeah, yeah. That, that could absolutely be the case i still got to think that even if Rachmanov himself is like more hesitant or more overthinking neil himself will create clinches yeah where Rachmanov will get to just stop thinking and just do what he does yep and, and, um, and Rachmanov also seems just like the kind of guy who's had enough right combat sports success over his life. This is another thing we've talked about with guys who thrive under hoofed is that like, if you are used to winning, he is a, he is very much a winner's coach. Oh yeah. If you are, you, if you are confident and used to being a badass, he is the kind of coach that will ride you and push you to be more of that guy. Yeah. 
And so those kind of fighters really do tend to thrive in that because then they just know, like, yeah, I can just clinch up after this and own you anytime right. I want. I'm just trying some stuff out in the meantime. Yeah, and Rachmanov seems like an innately comfortable fighter to begin with. Yeah, he seems not like I don't. I do not expect him to be the kind of guy that Hooft will be like, "Stop losing, Shavkat," and he'll be like, "What? Am I losing?" Yeah. You know, yeah. he'd just be like, "Oh, sh-, you know, screw you. I can just do this anytime I want." Yeah. So an interesting fight. I mean, Neil is yeah. not a not like a pushover by any means. Yeah, it's certainly different than any fighter that Rachmanov mm-hmm. has had to face so far. But it's hard not to see Rachmanov just sort of ending up in a winning position at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, Rachmanov is a heavy favorite. Opened at minus 435, currently at minus 528. Neil opened at plus 350, currently plus 378. It's it's just a it is not a fight made for Neil. Mm-hmm. All right, that brings us to a lightweight bout: Mateusz Gamrot, Jalen Turner, and um, this is actually this is interesting. This is a difficult fight to call. Mm-hmm. I actually I was swayed in one direction on this, but uh, that was my initial feeling as well. My initial feeling, I I just kind of went into this cold, honestly. And my feeling that I've gotten through it is that this is a better fight for Gamrot than it is for Turner. Yeah. Because Gamrot is so single-minded about being a wrestler. He's got the ace so creative and scrambling as a wrestler you know somebody that Benil Dariush may have beat him on the feet but and and it was as good as could escape Gamrot on the ground but Gamrot kept you know both against Dariush and against um Saryukin like he can just keep creating and surviving and going through and scrambling through insane wrestling exchanges. Yeah, he is an unbelievable scrambler, and he has the cardio to do it over and over and over again. Yeah, and that is bad if with especially one aspect of Turner's game. His takedown defense? (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing with his takedown defense is that it's actually not always miserable. Yeah. But he loves to jump on guillotines. And he did it when Josh Kulabau shot in on him. Mm -hmm. And he did it when Brad Riddell shot in on him. Mm -hmm. And it worked beautifully. He didn't finish Kulabau with the guillotine, but he, he scared him off of trying to be in, stay inside on him. Mm-hmm. And he did it when Matt Frivola shot in on him, and Frivola instantly took him down. Yeah. As that fight went on against Frivola, whenever he stopped, whenever he can't get to the guillotine, first and foremost, like when, when Jamie Malarkey would shoot in on him. Yeah. Uh, Turner actually did a really good job defending takedowns. Well, he did. I mean, giving up one takedown to Jamie Malarkey isn't a great sign. True, but I mean, Malarkey's he's dogged and he will he will try everything. Yeah, 
He's not a bad wrestler. I mean, you know. Hey, basically, he adjust, he adjusted to Malarkey as Malarkey went on because Malarkey tried more than more yes. than just the one. And uh, he has the size to really sprawl on people and to make them pay for shots. Yes. When he defends, when he figures out the proper defense. Yeah. So what, like, they're not all good takedown defenses, but when he does it, he can be very dangerous. Yeah. This is, and, yeah. Jalen Turner is not a guy who wastes opportunities and transitions. Yeah. And that is interesting. Be, it, namely that as somebody else noted, like, uh, um, Gamrot's his 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 first his kind of first option takedown is like a very low single. Yeah, and that it may a confuse the hell out of Turner and just result in him getting taken down right away, or it may be be a takedown that Turner doesn't immediately try a guillotine on because it's just not available. But yeah, won't be. And sprawls really hard and like does makes the right move because he, he won't have the opportunity to make the wrong one. Yeah. It's a possibility. I, I would say that the best aspect of Turner's takedown defense is the sprawl. Yes. <laughs> and that when he does get taken down, um, happened multiple times in the Frivola fight, it is like it is out of a transition. I think he's inherently aggressive in those moments mm-hmm. and doesn't always reckon with the, the, doesn't always realize that he, he, he might need to stay on like stay defensively responsible. Yeah. He's like, okay, I've stuffed the first thing. Now it's time to kill. Yeah. Um, and I really like this about Turner's game. Like uh, that. Yeah. He, he, again, he, he will take the, the targets that are open to him. And he's just really good at flowing between ranges and between phases while constantly hunting for a way to hurt the opponent. Yeah, he is more than any opponent Gamrot has faced. Well, with the slight exception, slight, but even more than I would say than that, more than any other opponent that Gamrot has faced, uh, with the slight exception of Grom Katadaladze, a fight Gamrot lost. You can mm-hmm. argue about how it should have been scored, but a, it went a against super him. close fight. A super close fight, with the exception of Kutataladze. Turner is uh, more dangerous in the singular moment than any other opponent. Yes, Dariush is a he. He is a more dangerous momentum opponent. Where if he gets a crack, if he gets a little wedge. Where you start to flag, Dariush is going to start hurting you, yeah. no matter what. But Turner is the guy, more than anyone else, that any single thing that Turner does at any one time could knock you out. Yeah, You could be walking forward in the first second of the fight, and he will just fire a step knee up the middle, and it will hurt you brutally. In that way, he's a lot like Dan Hooker in that way. Mm-hmm. Where Dan, you know, is not he? He's had a lot of fights where he'll just be getting beat, and then he'll just fire one shot, and he's so range, he's so big and so spindly, yeah, that those single shots come with so much momentum and from such weird angles that they're just going to catch you cold and they're going to be hard. Yeah, and Turner is again; he's always thinking. He's yeah. very offensively focused and is super accurate. Selects his shots really well. Um, and it helps that he's huge. So like, yeah. 
He just has an easier time of seeing his openings as people try to get to him. And Gamrot's middle distance strike defense is easily his weakest area. It is so bad. Middle distance striking in general. Yeah. Um, Every single time Dariush just stepped in and was like, what if I just throw this really hard? Like every leg kick, Gamrot would get spun around almost. Yeah. You know, he is not braced for these strikes at all. Now, tough as shit. Never been knocked out. Insanely tough, yeah. Insanely tough. Great cardio. Great wrestling and grappling. So that's why I'm picking him. Yeah. But there are enough caveats in this to be really interested in it for me, you know? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm st- even even having come down pretty firmly on Gamrot's side after talking with Phil and Ryan. I, I still think it's a really interesting fight. I like both these fighters, uh, and I would love to see Jalen Turner find some ways to test Gamrot. Yeah, I mean, like he, if he just lands a left hook or a step knee as Gamrot steps in in the first thirty seconds of this fight, he could have Gamrot on rubber legs. I mean, yeah. this is Turner is somebody who has finished you know, half of his opponents in the first yep. round, if not more. And he does it, you know, he, he knocked Gabe Green out in 36 seconds. I'm not saying Gabe Green is the highlight of, you know, amazing talent, but he's, he's tough a really hell. tough dude. Exactly. Yeah. He's very tough. Um, yeah, so the, the thing, first I'll share a, a take that I found really interesting. This is from from Ryan Wagner again. He said that um, he loves Gamrot. Yeah. All these all these fight type dweebs, they love Gamrot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he he had a yeah again I think a interesting and very insightful uh, viewpoint, which is that Gamrot really should be a transitional killer. Mm-hmm. That Gamrot can force so many scrambles and get to so many good positions that you know as we you and I have noted many times, people always inevitably work their way out of yeah that he should be smashing people while they're in the process of getting out of his good yeah. positions would really kind of benefit from the some team more team alpha male um ideology because he's very much on the rinse and repeat yeah kind of part of it but the thing with the team alpha male is like take down instant sub attempt punch beat you up all the way up and then just assume right. i can do it over again yeah which he could yeah um, and yeah, and, and he was pointing out some moments like in the fight with Dariush, you know, he very quickly gets a takedown. Dariush immediately like goes for a leg lock, creates a scramble. Gamrot floats around, gets out of it. And, and they stand up with Gamrot on Dariush's back mm-hmm. on like a rear waist cinch. And he stands there. He's able to hold it for a little while. But Dariush, good grappler, is fighting the yep. hands. And so he releases one hand and lands what I can only describe as some perfunctory punches. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm supposed to do this. And then Darius is still in the process of turning around and Gamrot just breaks and backs off all the way back to the middle. Yeah. Is the rinse and repeat mindset when, um, Brian very correctly pointed out, like that's when you throw three really hard punches. Mm -hmm. The guy's against the fence. You've just been controlling him. Now he has to turn all the way around to face you before he can do anything. And it's going to make this fight very, it could make this fight very dangerous because Jalen Turner is a dude who, yeah, like every single time you are on the repeat part of the rinse repeat cycle. Exactly. Yeah. There, any one strike could melt you. We have seen 
every you know every win Jalen Turner has is basically one strike he threw just knocked somebody clean out. Yeah, but the thing is, these these missed opportunities do arise so often because, really, without exception, all the dudes Gamrod has been fighting in the UFC are insanely good grapplers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is something I think it's worth keeping in mind that he it has is. been competing with and frequently beating the best grapplers in the division. And he did instantly Kimura the shit out of Jeremy Stevens. Right. Just like not even a not even a question. Right. So like all these guys that we just take it as a given that Ogamrot can't hold anybody down. Yeah. Which 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 was Ryan's point. Like clearly he wants to be a control grappler. Yeah. Because he's not like anticipating these escapes to the extent that he is ready to punish them. Mm-hmm. He's trying to control the whole time and then he's got to do it over again because he loses it. Yep. All these dudes are insanely good. Mm-hmm. You've got uh Dariush, you've got Sarukian, even Kutatuladze is a very good grappler. But uh, that's a good grappler. You've got Federa. These are all exceptionally good grapplers. Better than Jalen Turner, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. Jalen Turner is not really a great scrambler. And another thing Ryan pointed out that swayed me is that Turner, notably, does not have the almost ubiquitous MMA meta thing of instantly giving his back to stand up as fast as possible. Which is when Gamrod always loses. Uh, mm-hmm. Loses the position. People belly down. And they get yeah. back up, and maybe he's on their back when they get up, and then he doesn't quite know what to do with that. Yeah. But uh, Turner actually will, like, play guard and mm-hmm. look to, like, get butterfly, uh, like, elevators and underhooks and try to sort of, like, sweep or hip heist his way back to his feet. He doesn't, you know, just go hands and knees down and stand up as fast as possible. Yeah. So I, I think there's a significant chance this is the fight where we see Gamrot getting takedowns and actually just staying on top for extended periods. Yep. And that is a definite way to escape the inherent risk of uh, the normal rinse and repeat routine against a guy like Jalen Turner, who is himself so dangerous in those transitions. Yeah, and it might be a pretty good way to tire Turner out, too. That, too. So I I think we probably are going to see Gamrot actually controlling Turner on the ground, and maybe not doing a ton with it, but uh, frustrating Turner's attempts to stand which don't really fit into the uh the pattern of Gamrot not being completely unable to hold people down for long periods. Yeah. First couple of minutes of this fight though could be deadly. Every See. time they're on the feet and if Turner does, yeah. you know, just if he'd be very wise to focus on very expecting takedowns and quickly scrambling back to his feet. Yeah. That would be a pretty simple thing to recognize from the footage and work on it in this camp. A guy as huge as him you know, like that could work. I, yeah. I'm still very interested, but yeah, I do think Gamrod is actually going to finally get some, uh, some much yearned for top time uh, in this fight. Turner opened at plus two Oh five dropped down to plus one forty five. currently up at plus one seventy six. Gamrod opened at minus two forty, jumped up to minus one seventy two, and is currently at minus two seventeen. Don't know why, but some reason like, <laughs> <laughs> in a world of tops, Gamrot has been forced. <laughs> He's nope. finally gonna gonna get to top somebody. That's right. No longer a bottom. That is really the. That's a tragic life, isn't it? Like, right. The the, the unwilling bottom. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> let's actually not to discuss this any further. We could very quickly. <laughs> yeah, let's move on. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bo Nickel is going to beat the pants off Jamie Pickett. All right, yep. done. All right, that has been the Vivid section. I'm doing the sign-off today, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this is a soft touch for Bo Nickel, which it's, it's I... The kind, it's fine. It's the kind of fight he should be taking. Pickett oh, is yeah. actually a step up from, uh, you know, Donovan Beard and Zachary Borrego. Uh, Pickett uh-huh. is a good athlete. He's a strong athlete. He is big. Uh, he has some, you know some uh power in his game and all that he's just so easily cowed by good athletes and yeah or by that's, anything. that's the end I mean, of it yeah. he, he is he is the definition of like a gentle giant like you, you look at jamie pickett you're like this dude is a fighter yeah and then his attitude his body language in the cage is that of a much smaller much weaker man yeah i mean he is a dude who crumbled faster than jordan wright yeah so that's it Yep. Uh, odds on the fight. Uh, Nickel opened at minus eighteen hundred, jumped up to minus one forty five, and is currently down at minus seventeen seventy three. Pickett opened at plus nine hundred, dropped down to plus seven thirty three, and is currently at plus nine thirty seven. Uh, Nickel inside. Nickel by TKO KO is plus one seventy five, plus two twenty five, plus one eighty. Um, sure. Nickel by submission, minus 165, uh, minus 143. Like That's a probable way to go, right? Like Both of those Nickel are... like submitting people. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that that's also just born of the fact that the, the guys he's fighting are walkovers, and Pickett might be good enough not to get submitted. I don't, you know, he he was submitted by Kyle Dowcast, so maybe that'll just happen to him again. But yeah, he might also just be able to stop being submitted. But he's also got, you know, TKO by Jordan Wright and Dennis T. Lulin. Mm-hmm. So uh, either one is pro- probable. And if you're looking at, you know, minus a thousand odds, I guess. Uh, Nickel by some form of finish seems pretty, pretty confident to me. You know, yeah, probably. All right, that wraps up the main card of this section. You can find me on Twitter at these ain't time. You can find Connor on Twitter at Boxing Bush. You can find both of us over at bloodyelbow.com. Give us a like, subscribe to our podcasts over on Bloody Elbow Presents on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all those good places. And uh, as always, the MMA Vivid section is brought to you by Chris Reaney and his book, The Fine Art of Violence, which you can find over at chrisreaney.com, C-H-R-I-S-R-I-N-I.com. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Vivis Section, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive fighter interviews, show money, guest podcasts, the Hey Not the Face podcast, 
and radio-style play-by-play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bloody Elbow Blog, and as always, on BloodyElbow.com.